We are headed into the second week of our series of Noel, He is Born. And last week we looked at where did Jesus come from? And we looked at the reality that he comes from an all-loving, relational, triune God, of the Father, the Son, the Spirit, before the beginning. And from the beginning, before creation existed, and, and were defined by love and fellowship and relationship, that to be God is to be in relationship, to be God is to be in love. And out of that place, we were created, that longing from God for relationship and fellowship. And so as we continue to look at this good news that he was born a natural next question as we look at the fact that Christ was born is, did he really come as a fully human being like us? And that's what we're going to look at today. The nature of Jesus and his divinity and his humanity is one of the oldest battles in Christianity and one of the oldest debates. In fact, it was the central reason why we have the most important gathering and really the history of the church for theology. And that was called the Nicene Council back in 325 A.D. Emperor Constantine at that time uh, took the top leaders and invited all of them from across Christendom, across the empire, to come together to be able to stomp out some heresies and decide once and for all what is the true teaching about Jesus and who he is. There were over 300 bishops present at this meeting from across the empire. In fact, almost every single one of them had been tortured for their faith, as at that point, up to the first couple hundred years, there was incredible persecution in the empire. So many of the bishops who were present at the Nicene Council were missing limbs or fingers or other things, and almost every single one of them had been persecuted in some way for their faith. So these scholars and leaders bore the wounds of their perseverance with Christ. And they had almost all laid down their lives for the, for, for the gospel at that point. And the central issue of this gathering at the Nicene Council wasn't just to put together a nice document. It was to deal with the reality of who Jesus was and is. And back in the early 300s, there was this guy, along with many others, but the main spokesman was a guy named Arius, who was fighting to be able to say that Jesus was just a created by God, but he was not fully God. That Jesus was a creation of God, but not divine. And it created this massive division in the church and across the Roman Empire. And so Constantine called all the top leaders, the top bishops from the area, to join and discuss this and come up with a, with a decision. Again, the biggest showdown in church history, is Jesus fully God and fully human, or is he just a creation of God? And the story is told that at this council, one of the bishops came there was a bit special, and his name was Nicholas of Myra. And later on, he went on to receive sainthood, and his name became St. Nicholas, right? Which is the name that we get Santa Claus from, the very same one. In fact, St. Nicholas wasn't born in the North Pole, doesn't live in the North Pole. He lived in a place called Myra, which was in what is modern-day Turkey. And out the, at this Council of Nicaea, the story is told of St. Nicholas, a.k.a. Santa Claus as we know him, that, who was one of the 300 bishops who was there, that he heard as Arius was up front preaching this message of heresy, that Jesus was not in fact fully divine and fully God. And he walked up to him in front of all the Council of 300 people and slapped him across the face and denounced him in front of everyone. In fact, there's a drawing of this that was done centuries ago of St. Nicholas slapping Mr. Arius, right? For some reason, he has a really small arm. I don't know why, but um, <laughs> interesting designs back then, right? Later on, it, someone updated it a little while back with something more like that, right? A, a little more difference, a different picture of Santa Claus than maybe you're used to. And a lot of uh, memes and, and, and things have gone out of the years about this. Um, 
about the fact that Santa Claus punched a heretic. And here's one of my favorites. It says, I came to give presents to kids and to punch heretics, and I just ran out of presents, right? <laughs> um, I love it. But at the Council of Nicaea, the bishops agreed that Arius spoke heresy. They were all in agreement, and they formulated what we know as the Nicene Creed today. This is the most foundational statement in the history of the church, and it's been repeated tens of billions of times over the last 1,700 years. Why? Because the entire foundation of our faith rests on the reality that Jesus is fully human and fully divine. The Nicene Creed begins this way. First, talking about God, it says, We believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. So it speaks first about the Father. Now it gets to the, the crux of what the whole council was about, about Jesus. It says this, And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, notice the repetition here, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. Anyone notice some repetition there, right? Almost like they're trying to make a point. And then he goes, of the same essence, or homeosius, is the word that they use there as the Father. I mean, they say over and over and over again, what are they emphasizing? That Jesus is God. There is not a separation between them. They are distinct persons, but they are fully. And that language of homeosius is, is one that historically, I mean, you can find endless books on this, of the centrality of that idea of the same substance, made of the same thing of God. He is not of a lesser degree. He is not a lesser God. He is of the same thing as God, fully divine. And then the next part. Through him, Jesus, all things were made. We talked about this last week. For us and for our salvation. Jesus came down from heaven. He became incarnate, right? He became a human being by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. And that's just the first half of it. This is the cornerstone of the theology of which our church is built upon. Not this church, but the global church. That Jesus is not just a created being who's less than God, and he's not just some divine being who never actually became human, but Jesus fully entered into humanity and is one of us today. Now, the implications of this are beyond massive, and I'll be hammering them home until my dying breath. And why is this so important? For so, so many reasons. I think it's best described by Dr. Baxter Kruger in a book I recommended last week called The Great Dance. And he just talks about how if Jesus wasn't fully divine, if he wasn't fully God, true God from true God, light from light, as the Nicene Creed says, if he wasn't fully God, then he cannot give us what he doesn't have. See, if Jesus wasn't fully God, there is no eternal life available to us. There is no life available to us because he didn't possess it. So it means nothing. It's, it's a meaningless, just a, a good teacher, a happy guy, if he wasn't fully God. But also, if Jesus is divine, but not fully human, Jesus may have a divine life, but it doesn't reach to us. We can't enter into that life if he wasn't fully human. He, the life he enjoys with the Father and the Spirit, we can only be spectators of it if he wasn't fully human. We would be forever separated. 
God would be like a, a blimp in the sky, that he's up there and we're down here. He is close, he's visible, we can see him, but ultimately he is out of our reach if Jesus wasn't fully human. And we can never be fully in Christ in the way that Paul speaks again and again and again if Jesus wasn't fully human. But Jesus became what we are. So we can join him where, where he is. So we can join him in the life that he created for us. The life he shares with the Father and the Spirit and all of us who follow him. Athanasius of Alexandria, Athanasian Council, in refuting Arius, this is what he said at the council. He said, for that was the very purpose and end of our Lord's incarnation. The very purpose of why Jesus became human. That he should join what is man by nature, so humanity, to him who is by nature God, to God's divinity. That so man might enjoy his salvation and his union with God without any fear of its failing or its decrease. I love that line. Because Jesus is fully human and fully God, he joined humanity back into the full fellowship with God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So we no longer need to be afraid of losing it any longer of it decreasing, as it says, because we are in Christ, as Paul says over and over again. Whereas Jesus said, as we looked at last week in John 17, that he is in us, and we are in him. We can experience that life of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, because Jesus is fully human and fully God, and he bridges that gap. He brings us back into that place. Amen? So Jesus is fully human. And when we see images of Jesus, especially this time of Christmas time, oftentimes they might give us a slightly wrong view of who he is, right? So here's some of the examples. If you just Google or look at Google image searches of pictures of the, of the birth, notice something that's often very common in these photos. Jesus is usually radioactive, <laughs> right? Light emanates from him as though he's this divine, holy being that either has a halo or the light is always centered right there on Jesus, or sometimes there's even a, a picture of like him in a manger in a rock building with a light shining down upon him through all the layers of the mountain, right? That he, this light is there because of him. And, and really, well, I get what they're trying to do, but oftentimes this gives us a really bad misunderstanding of who Christ is. And it's kind of denying the whole reality of his humanity. Or sometimes you even look at the, some of the, the songs that we sing that in some ways don't emphasize the humanity, but usually emphasize his divinity, I did a whole series on this a couple of years ago, just emphasizing week after week the humanity of Christ. But one of my favorite songs being Away in a Manger. Beautiful song. You know, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, the newborn baby awakes, and what's the next lines? But little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Wait a second. I don't know if you guys have ever been around a newborn baby. When they wake up, usually they're not silent. There's somehow this idea that it kind of diminishes the reality that he would have been pooping and peeing and screaming and crying. And I mean, this is a baby here we're talking about. If a baby's not crying, usually that's a problem, not a good thing. My kids watch this movie called Boss Baby. Have you seen it before? So here's a picture of it. So it's about this little baby that can walk and talk, that, that, that makes plans, and it's smarter than most other adults. And the tagline of the, of the, the, the screenshot, is that in there? Nope, it's not. All right, no problem. Uh, is that born leader is what it says on the tagline for this thing. And, and this boss baby, he's right from birth. He's running around. He's ordering people around right as soon as he was born. He's talking to the people. He's smarter than most adults. He's, con he's, he's coming up with all these plans and teaching people. 
mean, is there any chance? Is that what Jesus was like? Out of the womb, he's up running around and teaching others about the truths of Scripture and prophetically speaking over other people and healing birds, as some of the, the intertestamental books kind of say he does. We know that's not true. Jesus was not performing miracles as a toddler. He didn't have superhuman abilities when he was born. He wasn't wiping his own bum coming out of the, of the womb. He wasn't, uh, in fact, he would, he would vomit out his food regularly, as any baby does. And it wasn't like beautiful, like perfume smelling. It wasn't nice. Like, he, he would keep his parents up in the night regularly, screaming and crying. He was likely colicky at some point. He, he had some issues. He would drive his parents crazy when he was a toddler, and they'd be exhausted by him sometimes, running around, chasing after him. And as he grew up, he wasn't the fastest kid in school. He didn't do everything perfect. He often made mistakes and couldn't figure things out as he was learning how to build furniture and build tables and all the rest. And oftentimes, he would go fishing and not catch any fish. And here's the craziest thing about his humanity. If Jesus really is fully human, as the Bible tells us, that means for years of his life, Jesus didn't even know that he was God. How would I know that? Because a two-year-old can't understand divinity, right? There was a point in his life where he began, where his brain developed, and he began to understand who he was and he was called to. As he read the Old Testament, as he began to form a relationship with the Father, and he began to learn who he was and what he was called to. He was a fully human being. A baby can't understand the realities of that. A three-year-old can't. I mean, sometimes I think my six-year-old thinks he's God, but I, I don't think he can fully understand all the implications of that. We know he definitely understood it, at least to a significant degree, by the time he was 12 years old in the temple, when he's correcting all the people. But Jesus had to learn. He had to grow. In fact, Luke chapter 2, 52 tells us, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. If he had it all, he didn't have to grow. But he had to learn the scriptures. He had to learn the Psalms and the Torah, and memorize it just like every other kid did. And how do I know all this? Because Jesus was fully human. He fully entered into humanity. He maintained his divinity, but for his time here on earth, he chose to limit himself to the full human experience. Like last week when we looked at the Trinity, I want to lay a foundation from Scripture about this, and so I don't want to make assumptions what anyone knows. And so the, the first passage that we look at when looking at his humanity is Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Probably the most famous passage about it. He says in this, in verse 5, Paul says, You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He emptied himself, is the language the NIV there uses. He took the humble position of a slave, and when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Here Paul tells us that Jesus is God in all his glory, but he came to earth. In verse 7 it says again, he emptied himself. Or I think, no, the NIV of this one I think says, made himself nothing here. And how did he do that? He took the form of a servant, became a human. Instead of the king of glory in heaven, Jesus became, the God became a slave here on earth. And he was born just like all humans as a baby. God could have created Jesus as a fully formed adult. He did it with Adam and Eve, but he didn't do it that way. Instead, he had him become fully human with the full human experience, the same as us. 
but without sin and fully divine. Jesus didn't become less God or less divine when he came to earth. But he chose, Scripture tells us, to not access his divine privileges, but emptied himself. Think of it like there were two faucets. You have the humanity of Christ and his divinity of Christ. One's the hot water, one's the cold water. And while he was here on earth, Jesus just chose to keep the hot water turned off. He chose not to access his divine privileges. He chose to live the full human experience. And you see this all throughout the Gospels of Jesus limiting himself, limiting his knowledge, limiting his power, completely relying upon the Father. Scripture tells us that every single thing that Jesus did, because what about the miracles? What about walking on water? What about the divine knowledge? What about the prophecy? Scripture tells us very clearly that every single thing he did, he did through the power of the Holy Spirit working in him in accordance to the Father. Acts chapter 10, verse 38 puts it this way. You know, they say, he says, about Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. How? For God was with him. Jesus chose to live a life of complete dependence upon his Father. Laying down the divine privileges to live the whole human life. He was unable to do these things on his own. He became fully human, and he showed us as humanity the kind of life he called us to live. Jesus was not born simply so that he can get sinners into heaven, as we're going to see in just a minute. But he also came to show us the kind of life he created us to live, a life fully dependent upon the Holy Spirit, completely dependent upon him to guide them, a life in complete communion with the Father and the Spirit. Starting next month, we're jumping into a series on Acts, and we're going to get to look at how that all started and what he did in us. It's incredible to look at the early church and the way they engaged with the Father and lived out the calling upon their life. Now, the Bible speaks a great deal about Jesus' humanity, and the Gospels tell us other, that other than the incredible example that we see when he's at the temple when he's 12 years old and he somehow is able to have this incredible knowledge about scripture and he's training the other rabbis who are there most of the people close to jesus had no idea there was anything special about him and this is just mind-blowing when you see what it says in scripture not even most of his own family had any clue who he was or that he was any different Towards the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when Jesus starts gathering crowds and people start believing in him, Mark tells us this in chapter 3, verse 20. It says, Then Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again, so they could not even eat. 21. And when his family heard of it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He's out of his mind. His own family, the people around him, are thinking, Jesus is out of his mind. What is he doing? And they're trying to protect him from the crowds, protect them from these other things, in some ways, protect him from himself. His own family doesn't believe. Towards the beginning of his, or, uh, so, uh, sorry, a couple of verses later, it says this in verse 31. It says, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. They said, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. They were trying to protect him. Because they knew that he's going to get in great trouble for these things. Because they doubted the reality of it. His entire life, how is this possible? Because his entire life, his family has seen nothing that would show them or tell them, his own family, that Jesus was anything but just a regular guy. Even those close to him thought he was crazy. 
Mark chapter 6, verse 1, check this out. This one is just absolutely mind-blowing. He says, he went away from there as he goes back to Nazareth and then came down to his hometown and his disciples followed him, verse 2. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Verse 3, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are, they not, are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense of him. Now, Jesus didn't come from some massive city of millions of people. It wasn't from Seattle or even tens of thousands like Mill Creek. He was from Nazareth. If you've been there, it's a small place. It's the side of a hill. At that time, scholars would say there was about 100 to 150 people living in the city of Nazareth. That's about how many people are in our church this morning. This is not a massive town by any means. And what that means is that all these people knew Jesus. Almost every one of them. They'd grown up with him. Jesus is 30 by this point. They spent decades. They know him. They know his parents. They know the shop. They know him really, really well. You can't lie about your next door neighbor of what's going on. They've seen him his entire life. They watched him play. They watched him fight his brothers. They watched all this stuff go on his entire life. And now he's up there saying he's God and all this stuff happening and performing miracles. Like, who does this guy think he is? Because they knew him really well. And the only thing special about Jesus was the way they would whisper about him behind his back. Not that he was divine. Why would they be whispering about him? Because no one really knew who his father was. He was that illegitimate child. No one really knew the full story about Jesus. But they would have known him. They would have brought their goods to his father's shop. They would have watched him raise up. They would have watched him apprentice with his father. And eventually when Joseph was gone, they would have bought their goods from Jesus. And so when they see him standing up and acting like he's someone special, they all try to cut him down. Who does this guy think he is? We know Jesus. Why is he acting like he's special and better than one of us or different than us? They didn't believe him, and they took offense in some way of him trying to say that he knew more than they did. How is that possible? Because Jesus chose to live the fully human experience. It's mind-blowing. For 30 years, his own next-door neighbors and even his brothers had no idea there was anything special about him. John 7, 5 says, not even his brothers believed in him. They'd grown up with him. Sure, Mary would have been talking about the dream and the vision and who he is all the time. Somehow, they didn't believe a word of it. Because what they saw was just a regular guy. Why? Because Jesus determined that he would be like us in every single way. There was nothing about his childhood that stood out from those around him. There was no halo. There was no healing of birds. There was no angelic singing. There was no uh, prophetic gifting. There was nothing that made him seem like anything other than Joseph and Mary's carpenter's son. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. In Hebrews 2.15, it says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he, Jesus, too, shared in their humanity. A couple verses later, the author says, For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every single way that means jesus got tired it means he got lonely it means he got sick it means he was tempted to lust 
Because Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, a few chapters later, says, For we do not have a high priest, referring to Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way there is, just as we are, yet is without sin. So he knows it all. So Jesus was fully human just as we are. He can identify with us in every single way. He was tempted just like us. He struggled with the things that we struggle with. He understood anger. He understood fear. He understood loneliness. He he felt isolation. He understands insecurity as he came to grips with the incredible calling upon his own life. He knew grief and pain beyond anything any of us will ever experience. And that's why statements he makes are so powerful, especially things like Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, when he says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This isn't some distant God saying that who doesn't understand. It's the God who understands every single bit of it. And notice what he says there. He says, learn from me. Superman can't say, learn from me. Right? Superman can't say, hey, learn from me. Watch how I pick up this truck with my pinky finger. Learn what, look, look what I'm doing. Follow my example. Do what I have done. You can't do that. Jesus saying, learn from me is completely meaningless unless he is fully human. But Jesus knows our burdens and our pains. And he can give us rest. And he says, learn from me. I've walked the journey you've walked. I'm showing you the way. The way of life and beauty and hope. Jesus is just like us in every single way. He knows the full human experience. Hopelessness and pain and heartache and weakness and abandonment and anger and disillusionment and anxiousness. And that's why it's so important we understand this properly. Because if Jesus is walking around with a halo, not fully human then all of it's garbage. It's all meaningless. He's out there as some distant blimp who can't actually reach here. But Jesus was helpless. He didn't come like Adam and Eve fully formed. He came completely helpless, completely dependent upon humans to raise him, to keep him alive, and to care for him. Have you ever held a newborn baby? It's quite a trip. First time I ever held one was when J.J. was born, and it blew my mind. The helplessness of a newborn. Can't even lift their own head. I mean, I was terrified. The whole first infant I ever held was, and just his head just drooping every time you just lift it, it just drops. They can't do anything. I remember just holding him, just bawling my eyes out, thinking, Jesus, you came like this. I mean, the incredible time of meditation, just sit there holding a baby and realizing Jesus came like this completely dependent upon useless people like me somehow to keep this child alive jesus completely dependent upon humanity in that regards for years dependent but the event that imprinted the humanity of jesus on me more than anything else happened when one of my kids was just a couple weeks old and i told this story a couple years ago but i have to tell it again because it's kind of the central event that really just imprinted this about his humanity on me and it happened with one of my kids was just an infant and I was changing their diaper when they were just a couple weeks old. And I'd set uh, my son on the dining table on one of those changing pads. And I had taken his diaper off and I went to go get another diaper. And as I came back with the diaper, I saw the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. And that is my son is peeing at this time. And that's not the funny thing. They do that all the time. But what's so funny is he was peeing in a perfect arc. right? And this arc was going up 
going over and coming down directly into his mouth. And that's not even what's so funny about it. The funniest thing about it was how much he enjoyed it. Like my son was sitting there on there just going, it was touching his tongue. He loved it. He was so full of life and joy. I was laughing so hard. I literally fell on the ground, cracking up. I could not contain it. Sarah's in the kitchen. She comes out. She goes, what's going on? And I'm like on the ground, barely breathing, going, he's peeing in his mouth. (laughs) She's like, what? She grabs the diaper out of my hand, slams it on top of him, says all sorts of wonderful things about my fathering abilities. And... (laughs) And as she's doing it, I'm like, no, 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 don't say stop. He loves it. You're stealing his joy. Don't do that. He loves it. It's the best day of his life. Right? So terrible parent, I get it. But it was an incredible experience for him, apparently, even more so than for me. But what, what imprinted us so much is that at the time, it was right literally that week, I had been in um, it, this, this master's program I was doing on, that was going looking at the incarnation at that time. And so the next morning, I had this quiet time with the Lord. And I was meditating upon his incarnation and looking at the reality, some of the past we were just looking at. And I'll never forget as I was sitting there with the Lord. And I asked a question that honestly wasn't crass. And I just said, Jesus, did, did you ever pee in your mouth? Right? And there was no yes or no answer. That wasn't the point. But in that moment, I felt such an overwhelming joy, peace just wash over me. I felt the Lord say, you get it. That's how helpless I was. I required better parents than you did, but than you were, but hopefully Joseph did a better job than me. But that idea that that's how defenseless and helpless he was, the full human experience, that I mean, such a, a ridiculous thing may not have happened to him in that way because it doesn't happen to every kid. But he chose to be completely dependent upon his father and his mother. He became fully human. And he maintained that full humanity all throughout his life. Not taking up any of those divine privileges until his resurrection. This is the Jesus we serve. Who became like us in all these ways. And his entire life he demonstrated a love towards us beyond anything we could ever comprehend. And therefore we can bring our burdens to him of any kind. Because he understands. God is no longer a blimp who is far away. He is near. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is knowable. He is relatable. He is present to everything that we are going through. And he understands. If you're faced a a difficult trial of some kind, and how encouraging it is when someone who's walked through a situation very similar is able to come and just listen and be able to offer some counsel or just a listening ear. It's so powerful to have someone that's walked through that before that you know you're not alone. In fact, if you are, or if you're online and you're walking through any situation right now that is deeply painful, there are people in this body who have gone through similar things who would love to sit with you, especially if it's something to do with like parents who have seen kids walk into rebellion or, or turn away or, or walk with self-harm or, or, or threats of suicide or other things like that or mental health issues. We have people in this body that would love to sit with you and talk with you. And be able to to hear what's going on and encouraging those places. If you're walking through some difficulty, please reach out to us and we'll get you in contact with someone to connect with. And it's so good to meet with someone else who's able to offer that listening ear and maybe some wise counsel. But so much more than that, Jesus offers what no human can. Because he understands it all. 
He has perfect wisdom and perfect love. We can't shock him or surprise him. And he longs for fellowship with us. He's not a distant God who is out there. He is right here, Emmanuel, God with us, and he understands. And we can know him. Amen? Because in Jesus, the human being, we now have an exact picture of who God is, who the God the Father is, just as much as we can understand Jesus. The author of Hebrews also says this in chapter 1, verse 3. He says, And he, being Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. Other translations say the exact imprint. So we know exactly what God is like. As we saw in the Nicene Creed, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, of the same homeosius, the same substance as God. And it says here that we know exactly what God the Father is like because we know what Jesus is like. And just like we spoke of last week, so many people have these twisted understandings of God. Understandings that God is some distant God out there who's just waiting to smite the people with his wrath who turn away from him or or whatever it may be. And it's so wrong because God is ultimately revealed in Jesus. God's love is ultimately revealed in Jesus. And because Jesus is knowable, God the Father is knowable. Because Jesus became what we are, he identified with every aspect of who we are, every pain, every tear, every struggle, every anguish. He understands, and now we get to know him and the Father. What a freedom and privilege to know those who love us so deeply. And we can know them because this man, Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, came to us. And invites us to join in with the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. God is not distant and detached. He is perfectly displayed in Jesus. N.T. Wright says, you know, we shouldn't get our understanding by looking at God. He says, too often in the Western church, we just, we have this, this bad Christology. of we, we see Jesus through the lens of God the Father, and we have twisted understandings of God. But instead, every view we have of God must be through the lens of who Jesus is, revealed in Scripture. If anything doesn't line up with Jesus, it's it's not reality. Because God is knowable. Why? Because Jesus is knowable. God is love, demonstrated perfectly in the person of Jesus. God is gentle and kind because Jesus is gentle and kind. And so we celebrate Christmas. God made flesh. When the creator of the cosmos steps into humanity to be with us, to draw us back into himself and invite us back into fellowship. Not from a a position of distance, but Emmanuel is here with us. So no matter where you are today, no matter what you're going through, Jesus understands the circumstances. If you've known him for years, you barely know him him at all. He's saying that you can cast your burdens upon me and I can give you rest. Amen? Jesus says, in me is eternal life. I keep quoting this passage, and I won't stop. John 10.10. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Not just at some future date, but here and now we would step into that. 
Jesus knows our anxiety. He knows our fear of our kids' future. He knows what it's like to live in an anti-God society. He knows what it's like to watch a culture go into the toilet. He knows what it's like to have loved ones turns away. He even knows what it's like to have a loved one commit suicide. He knows what it's like to lose parents. He knows what it's like to have the incredible weight of difficult decisions. He came to life. He came and gave us life. A new way of life. United in him. That we could experience that easy yoke of Jesus with him. Get to live that life with him and his father. And his spirit. And his word to us today. Is simply come. We're going to take communion just now and the ushers can begin passing it around again it's only the second time we've done it with this way you just take a stack of the two cups we're trying to find easy ways to get it around where everyone's not grabbing it out of the same plate just take a take a stack as we move that way i want to read philippians chapter 2 verse 5 again it says have this mind among yourselves which is yours in christ jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus emptied himself. He became nothing. He humbled himself to the point of death. Worse than that, to death on a cross, a death reserved just for horrific criminals. And this is what Jesus calls us to remember until he returns. That God came to earth fully human. And he gave his life for us that we might be united in him. And communion, it calls us as we take communion to regularly gather together as followers, remember his sacrifice. So that we can experience his eternal life. As the goes, what is eternal life? John records it this way in his gospel. Right after he has the disciples take the last supper with communion. Jesus says this, as he wraps up in John chapter 17. It says, and Jesus said this. As he looked towards heaven and he prays. And he's, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that ye may, that you, that you, sorry, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. So Jesus says, glorify your son that I can give eternal life to everyone. But here it is, the definition. Now this is eternal life. What is eternal life? Jesus says that they know you, his disciples, that we, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's what eternal life is. There it is. Jesus defines it. Far more than getting sinners into heaven. Far more than getting a get out of of hell free card. Far more than getting mansions in heaven or getting the stuff we want or being reunited with with relatives that have died. Jesus is longing above all else when he defines eternal life. He said, as a relationship with me and with my father. That's how Jesus defines eternal life. And therefore, it's how we should define it as well. Eternal life is not just a future destination we go to when we die, but it's a present reality that we begin to taste and walk in right now. The kind of life that God is calling us to. 
In fact, Dallas Willard says it this way. He says, eternal life isn't just about quantity or duration of days. He says, instead, it's about quality of life, an eternal kind of life. Eternal life is a relational, abundant life of God creating us for, to know him and walk with him and the Father and the Son here and now, a life that brings healing in the midst of division and joy and sorrow and, and hope and despair. This is the life he's called us to, and we get to partake of it. And Jesus shows us what that life looks like, and we can enter into that life today, that eternal kind of life right now. So before we take communion, I just want to pray again. There's any of you that as you're speaking, you're just like, I want that kind of life. Just pray with me right now. You say, Jesus, that's what I want. I want that eternal kind of life. I'm tired. I know I've sinned. I don't want to keep running this race alone without purpose. Jesus, I just want to follow you. I want to give my life to you. I want the life you Help me to walk away from my sin and my brokenness and choose your life, Lord Jesus. Amen. If that's you, let's pray that. Please come and talk to us. We'd love to get you some resources and encourage you. Also, just another announcement. Next week, we're bringing out the baptismal pool. We have a couple people getting baptized to celebrate a little party. If you want to be, join in with that, you're recently given life to Christ, or maybe just have never been baptized, please let us know. We'd love to have you join in with the party next week. Amen. So let's take the bread and the cup. Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he handed it to his disciples. He said, this is my body that is broken for you. Take the bread. And then Jesus took the cup. So this cup represents my blood that was shed for you. That he gave his life for us. That we could experience eternal life in him. That begins now and goes on for eternity. Let's take the cup. Jesus, help us to fix our eyes upon you. May we never forget the reality of what you've done for us. You came from heaven to earth, the, the king of the universe became a slave. The maker of everything, the creator of the cosmos became nothing. You sacrificed your life for us. For our sakes, Lord, you became poor. And you did it all so that we could have life in you. So you could draw us back into fellowship. Thank you for loving us so much, O oh Lord. For pouring out your life. To give us eternal life in you, Lord Jesus. That we could experience your abundant life here and now and into eternity. Help us to reorder our lives, to keep fixing our eyes upon you. 
Give us your eternal kind of life. Lord, help us to turn to you in our places of pain, brokenness, and heartache. Tap us on the shoulder and say it's okay. Turn, grab our chin and turn our face to yours in the middle of whatever we're going through to see your face. The face of our loving creator who's given our life for us that we can walk with him.